Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Sarah Smith, Professor of Economics and Head of the Department of Economics at the University of Bristol. We talk about Professor Smith's research interests, which include charitable giving, and whether there is a positive relationship between social group size and the number of donations, and whether organised charitable fundraisers, such as children in need, sports relief and comic relief, result in funds just being transferred from one charitable organisation to another, rather than increasing the overall pool of donations given. Sarah also talks about what she's currently passionate about, which is gender differences in economics. We also talk about economics as a discipline within academia and how to train to be an economist. You can check out all the links, resources and books mentioned by Sarah at economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah Smith. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the economic rockstar website what you saw was a really clear downward relationship between the size of the social group the fundraiser was appealing to and how much each person in the group was giving Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honoured to have Professor Sarah Smith join me today. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hello, Frank. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me to, to, to chat to you. I'm, I'm very honoured to have you here on the show. Sarah Smith is Professor of Economics and Head of the Department of Economics at the University of Bristol. Her research interests are in applied micro, specifically consumer behaviour and public economics. Sarah has worked on pensions, saving and retirement and welfare policy, and her main focus now is the economics of not-for-profit organisations. Professor Smith has been working with a number of charity organisations to understand what motivates individuals to give and how donations respond to different economic and non-economic incentives. Sarah is a research associate at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, where she started her career and at the Centre for Economic Policy Research. She's also worked at HM Treasury, the Financial Services Authority and the London School of Economics. Sarah received her PhD from University College London and completed an MSc Economics from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Sarah, typically I ask people to maybe introduce themselves, talk about their work, and I, I think I might have ruined it with that introduction. 
<laughs> no, that's okay. So I can tell you a little bit about how I got into economics. So yes. I regard myself as a bit of an accidental economist. So I did an undergraduate in politics, philosophy and economics. And if I'm honest, it was always the, the politics side that interested me most. So, you know, economics came with the politics, but I, I kind of thought I was interested in the political process and the kind of policy outcomes. So I actually started my career as a political lobbyist. So when I left with an undergraduate degree, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I was looking around for various sort of jobs in policymaking. And I found myself working in what was then a very new industry in the UK doing kind of like political lobbying. So I was kind of going along to the House of Commons, looking at what people were saying, commenting on, on policy. And it was then that I realized that it was actually economics, which was going to be much more useful for understanding policy decisions than politics. So while politics gives you great insights into the political process, I think if you really want to understand how to make better political decisions in terms of policy outcomes, it's actually economics that's sort of the tool that allows you to do that. So I then kind of uh, restarted my career, my very nascent career, uh, as an economist and kind of went off to the LSE to, to kind of study economics. And then I was lucky enough to go from there to the Institute for Fiscal Studies which is sort of where I kind of really learn how to use economic skills in order to think about sort of policy problems. So first of all, breaking policy problems down into kind of the simple underlying economics. And then, you know, what I've always found most rewarding, actually being able to say something meaningful by looking at data and looking at how people behave, looking at how they respond to different policies, and then, you know, being able to sort of, you know, advise and, and comment on, on kind of what different policies might be chosen and what effects they'll have. And do you have an example of where an economic skills could actually deal with these policy problems when you come across it initially? How you could deal with people's behavior? Yeah, so I mean, you know, so obviously there are many different aspects of uh, policy making that interest economists. So, so, you know, a lot of economists are interested in, you know, the monetary policy or, you know, the big international trade or the, the big macro questions. So I've always been really interested in in kind of like micro policy and the nitty gritty of you know individuals decision making and how kind of like economic incentives or that went on to be kind of non-economic factors might influence those decisions so yeah as you as, as you, when you kind of like introduced me it kind of really looks like i've gone from one policy area so kind of saving and pension to the economics of philanthropy but i i kind of see them all as very linked you know sort of thinking about individuals their decisions how are they making decisions and how are those decisions being affected affected by economic incentives and other economic and non-economic pressures. So in my research, I've been looking at, for example, kind of, you know, retirement incentives. So we looked a little bit at how changes to pension rules might impact on, you know, the timing of people's retirements. And always there's, I think there's always a bit of a, a, a trade-off between making incentives to save for retirement or uh, incentives to retire more, more generous, which you might think would cause people to save more. But actually, you know, then you also find these perverse effects. So if you encourage people to save by offering them more generous saving incentives, actually, you know, what can happen is you reduce their saving because they can achieve their goals more easily. So it's always interesting to expose these possible unintended consequences to decisions. So also been working on working 
Families Tax Credit, and I was interested in the effect of the Working Families Tax Credit, which in the UK was a policy which introduced quite large in-work benefits for low-income households with children, and interested in the effects on working. And again, you know, while it was encouraging some households to work by subsidising the wages of one household member, it could actually reduce the incentives of the other household members to work because you know you've increased overall household incomes, and you know maybe actually there are some secondary earners who are going to be less likely to work as a result of this policy. And then also looking at the effect of these policies on whether or not people were having children. So it was making benefits more generous for households with children. And we found evidence of positive effects on on having children. So people seem to be more likely to have children. I mean, I think at the end of the day, they're probably just bringing forward decisions about having children. But still, when governments kind of, you know, do things, when they try to encourage people into work, for example, in this case, other things may happen as a result of these interventions, you know, some intended, some unintended. So yeah, so those are some examples of where being interested in using economic tools, so understanding of behavior and then data to kind of look at what happens in order to let the, the effects of policies. When you said you were an accidental economist and you were working in political lobbying yes. and commenting on policy and then you wanted to branch into economics to try and solve some of these uh, policy problems, how did you realize that economics was a way, a gateway into helping you solve these problems? I know there, you mentioned incentives and trade-offs and so on, but if you look at any economics, whether it's applied micro or macro at a master's level, I don't think, I, I don't remember anyway coming across anything like looking at retirement incentives or looking at uh, family planning, working family under tax credits and looking at how a second income earner or children can affect people's decision to work or not to work. Um, I know that you could see that on at street level or you can relate to it personally in a way, but did you have to explore this as a kind of a, a side to the work that you do or was this research that you ended up taking on yourself within the master's and then the PhD? Yes, well, the projects I mentioned are things that sort of I started working on at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So that was after I left the master's. So, yeah, no, I I think training yourself to think like an economist is abstract from complexity and think about the underlying incentives that people are facing. So that's, I think, what a good economics degree or master's should teach you. Then also what you should get out of an economics degree or a master's degree is the econometric tools. So how to take a data set, run regressions, think about causal relationships, worry about whether your results are going to be biased or whether you're getting a true estimate of, you know, the effect of a policy. So I don't, I mean, to be honest, I don't remember people on the master's program teaching about the application, but it did kind of give you the tools. And then for me, I guess, the place where people were putting this into practice was, you know, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which was a great place with lots of people who were interested in policy and lots of people who were interested in analysing policy using economic tools. And then people who are at UCL who are kind of working with the junior researchers and bringing the most cutting edge econometric methods and economic thinking and bring it together with the sort of the interest in policies. I certainly didn't learn everything that I needed to know from the master's, but Having spent some time just working without an economics degree, without a lot of economics training, it was clear that you needed some more to have enough tools to be able to then apply them to the areas that interested me. Given where you are now in the University of Bristol, do you have students interested, because you have a specialism, I suppose, in philanthropy and also looking at retirement and... Applied, applied micro. 
Yeah. Do you have students who may be somewhat influenced by your own research or is this something that you might encourage them given that you have, you'll be able to be a good mentor or, or supervisor? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of economic students are attracted to economics because they see it as a gateway to finance or banking. Those are very, you know, profitable careers and economics is very closely related to that. But we do at Bristol, we do teach them a lot of econometrics. So we teach them how to estimate economic relationships using data. They, in the third year, they get to do a dissertation project and they have a lot of applied topics, you know, so they, this year, so they're looking at links between immigration and support for public services. They're looking at the effect of policing on crime. They're looking at inequality and uh, wages. They're looking at education and the returns to education. So they're getting quite a lot of applied micro topics when it comes to the dissertations. And I teach second year course in applied micro where I sort of try to go through those same skills and tools that I think are important in applying economics to everyday life. So we look at what are the basic economic models that we need, that we can use to understand what might happen in the real world? How are we going to measure what happens in the world? And how are we going to think about identifying the effect of a policy rather than understand what really happens? And then finally, how should we think about the welfare analysis? So for example, we look at the minimum wage or we look at food stamps and we kind of think about, okay, well, How are people going to respond? What's the effect going to be using kind of economic theory? And then what has happened? Did the minimum wage cause employment to go down as sort of some models predict or did it actually cause no negative effect on employment? And then finally, who were the winners and losers from the minimum wage? How should we weight the winners and losers? How can we kind of draw this all together to make some statements about the benefits of this policy? So... I don't know if I'm that influential, but I certainly like to try and encourage students to think about economics in this practical problem-solving way. And economics can be used to understand many different areas of life, but I think it is quite closely related to policymaking. So in the UK, you know, the Government Economic Service is the biggest single employer of economists and economics is a social science. So, you know, we should be using it to understand the world around us and how to solve social problems. So I think it is very relevant to bring these topics to students and you know I think I think one or two of them go on to think about working in government or working in policy so at least they're exposed to that that's what I think that my role could be as a teacher is at least to sort of make them aware of the possibility of economics to, to think about real world problems. I like the way you described how the student would set up the research problem by posing all of those questions and I think that's important when you're doing some research is to set up those questions and ask and, you know, try and narrow down specifically what could cause or what could be uh, typical relationships within an economic model. And you mentioned there about your role as a teacher. How important do you think it is as an economist in academia? Um, There might be a stereotype that overly educated people may not have that uh, personal relationship with other you know i I don't know it it, it is a stereotype i'm sure you know but um we have to put on a a different half not only a research where you end up in isolation almost or if you collaborate with one or two other people but we do have to have that role as an influential mentor or teacher 
Yes, I enjoy teaching. I mean, I must admit, so I had a, I did a two-hour lecture today, so it was about some empirical studies related to the effect of food stamps. A two-hour lecture is probably quite a gruelling experience for me and the students, I don't know, but I enjoy teaching because I think it's important. You know, I personally think that economics is really useful for understanding the world around us. I think it's still got some really useful things to bring to everyday real-world problems, I want to try and convey that. So I think that's an important thing to do. Sometimes now in undergraduate teaching, we're teaching a lot of students. I have like over 200 students taking my course, and it's hard to build up a relationship with all of them. But, you know, one of the nice things about teaching is you also have different relationships with other students. So when it comes to supervising the third-year students, there's a smaller number. So you really feel like in one-to-one conversations, you know, hopefully you can explain problems, to, you know, help them with their problems and clarify things. So I think there are different rewards to different types of teaching. I mean, it's certainly something that's, you know, it's important. It's very, in the UK, given the fact that our revenue now comes, from, you know, so much from students, I think that's something that we certainly have to be aware of but I do think it's also something that's very rewarding as opposed to you know the publication process can be quite drawn out so it's quite nice to have some you know immediate feedback in terms of teaching and it's a really valuable kind of activity to be doing. Earlier on we were talking about your research on pensions and savings and philanthropy but most recently you you're working on economics of charitable giving yes how did you get into that is that something that was from a conversation with other people or was this something somewhat personal no well it was uh, so it started when i was at the institute for fiscal studies and so i was generally looking at household spending and saving and looking at data on kind of like you know what households were spending their money on and then we noticed in the survey that there was a question about how much had been given to charity and in the charitable giving literature there wasn't a lot of evidence on how much people gave, how this varied with different characteristics. So individual charities had data on the total amount of donations, but there wasn't much evidence from the donor side on a very systematic basis. So we just started looking at the data and then we looked at who was giving, how much different households were giving and whether there were patterns that would help us understand what was driving this behaviour. So it was quite a striking finding at the time. I think it was something that not a lot of people were aware of. But what we showed was that there were sort of age patterns in givings. We found that older households gave more than younger households. But having this really long time span of data, so we kind of were tracking giving in this survey, in this household survey over like 20, 25 years, we also found that there were what we think of as cohort patterns. So these older households were giving more than today's younger households, or sort of, you know, when we observed them, we could see older households giving more than younger ones. But we could also see that when those older households themselves had been younger, they had given at a higher level. So in other words, the sort of the older versus younger wasn't an age difference. It was actually a sort of generational difference. Those two things have quite different implications for thinking about what's going to happen going forward. Because if today's younger households are going to be like today's older households, then obviously they'll pick up their giving and everything will be fine. But if today's younger households are giving because it's a generational effect, then obviously as those older households sort of die out, then you've got new generations coming in who are less likely to be giving. And that's sort of more problematic on a kind of a long-term basis. 
what we'd done, so this cohort analysis was, I mean, it's a statistical descriptive exercise, but it was actually something that economists had been doing in other areas. So actually, Angus Deaton, who is actually professor of econometrics at Bristol, so I'm sort of coming around full circle. So he'd been doing that in relation to consumption and saving. So, so emphasizing that these cohort patterns could be really insightful in terms of understanding behavior. So we looked at that in the context of UK giving and found these sort of generational patterns, which I think were quite, I mean, it sort of raised lots of questions about, first of all, what was going to happen going forward on a practical level. And this was a sort of, you know, it was something that the voluntary sector needed to worry about. And then secondly, why was this happening? And that, that was a sort of more fundamental question, which was sort of harder to answer, you know, it was sort of possibly the decline of religion, or maybe the sort of households that had kind of come into adulthood with the welfare state, you know, there's this sort of idea that, you know, charitable giving is sort of a, almost a substitute for the welfare state. So perhaps these generational differences were linked to that. And there, it sort of seemed a very interesting behavior to think about. You can think about charitable giving in a very sort of standard economic framework. So there's a big literature which looks at the effect of tax incentives. So, you know, it sort of thinks about people deciding whether to give to charity or to, you know, spend money on food and making this decision and the government can use tax incentives to make, you know, the cost of a donation lower and we'd expect a kind of, you know, a, a sort of a substitution as we think about, you know, consumers substituting between any goods when the price of one thing goes down. So you can analyze it using very standard consumer theory framework. But then, you know, there's also a big literature about the importance of social norms in this field. So, you know, there's a big psychology literature on, on philanthropy and a sociological literature on philanthropy. So, you know, I think it, it was became really interesting to kind of think about the combination of economic determinants with, you know, other sort of social determinants and how these might affect behavior and then also the sort of wider implications of it for how people might give and how they might give in different situations. So it started as, you know, like, let's let's use this data and then sort of became, well, wow, this is sort of really interesting. There's a whole interesting set of issues here that I think give rise to lots of questions, which are sort of interesting to try and answer. That's it, yeah. There's the questions again. And you could open up so many avenues and immerse yourself in all of the types of determinants that would cause people to give charitably and even when you were saying about, about the older people in my mind I was thinking yeah they, I wonder is that correlated to you know church going over the last number of years and you actually brought it up then and then I was wondering is there a macro effect you know given the welfare state yeah it sometimes seems like the sort of the really big questions they can be quite hard to answer right so people often compare the US and the UK and sort of say oh you know well you know the US is very religious, the US doesn't have a welfare state. It's really hard to answer those big questions. So what we've been doing is using different data sets to build up a picture piece by piece, solving small parts of the puzzle and then trying to fit it all together. The UK and Ireland too, they're renowned for being very charitable countries. And once a year you have children in need. The population or the I suppose the distribution of ages that tend to support children in need range from very young to old and it's because of the i don't know is not because of but the the people who are organizing children need they go out into all types of parts of society from sports groups to knitting groups and they get people involved and it's great to see that on tv the way it actually all plays out 
I think one of the clear messages coming out of the literature, I mean, something that charities and fundraisers have known for a long time is that you know, it really often takes an ask for people to give. I mean, I don't, I don't think we quite understand, you know, what are some of the blocks, you know, as to why people don't give kind of without an ask, but people, when they're asked to give, that kind of prompts them to give, right? So there's some great papers showing maybe people just hate the social pressure. So there are some studies showing how people avoid the ask, you know, so clearly they perhaps prefer not to be asked, but asking will make them give. But clearly when people are asked, and I think obviously the ask with these big telethons is really effective, there's a very positive response. So one of the, um, actually, so you raise children in need and comic relief and sports relief, which are the other big campaigns in the UK. So we've actually been looking at a question that has puzzled quite a lot of people for a long time, which is if you have all these big appeals, does that just simply kind of take money away from other causes? So actually, it's been asked a lot in relation to disaster appeals. So in the UK, as well as the the regular telethons, there are big appeals in the wake of you know major international disasters. So the Disaster Emergency Committee will run a big appeal after the Southeast tsunami or Haiti or Nepal earthquake. There are these very you know big appeals which really elicit sudden and sizable responses in terms of uh, the number of donations. So one of the questions that people are interested, as I said, is does this just change the allocation of the pie without actually growing the pie. So we've been working with the Charities Aid Foundation. So they run charity accounts. So you can set up an account and then use that to make donations to lots of different charities. So the nice thing about that is it gives a really detailed insight into exactly which charities people give to at exactly what date they make their donations. So that kind of data is great because it allows us to look at exactly the question of, you know, if there's a big disaster appeal, can we see a big response to the disaster? So kind of disaster relief, which we can. So you kind of, you know, within these accounts, you see like the date of the appeal and this huge increase in giving to the disaster emergency committee charities. And then we also looked at what happened to giving to other charities. So, you know, the charities that didn't run the appeal. And what was really interesting was that giving to them went up too. So it wasn't that the disaster campaign or, you know, we we looked also at Comic Relief and the Children in Need Appeal, you get exactly the same effect. So it actually causes a sort of short-term increase in giving to other causes. So it's sort of like people bring their donations forward. So it kind of goes up and then it goes slightly down, the giving to other charities. But there's no overall negative effect. That kind of time shifting balances out and you just basically get no negative effect on giving to other charities. Just one big positive effect to the charity that runs the fundraising appeal. So that was kind of quite nice. For the sector, it's quite an important question about the effect of fundraising, whether it just moves money around or whether it actually increases donations. And it's also, again, useful for thinking about how people are making decisions. We found this interesting time shifting in other donations, which suggests that, you know, there's a bit of intertemporal substitutability in donations. So people kind of increase their other donations in response to the appeal, and then they give slightly less in the next period. But those two things offset each other. So we're kind of seeing these dynamic patterns, which is giving us more insight into how people behave and facing more questions that we can think about the economic models that might give rise to these types of behaviors in practice. Touching on a, a paper that you done recently in 2016, which touches on the 
aspects of children in need and where you have social groups. You co-wrote a paper, Relational Altruism and Giving in Social Groups. I did, yes. And did you find similar expectations based on questions you've put out there initially to test whether group size actually affects donations? In that paper, we were looking at a sort of slightly different type of giving. We were looking at giving, which is in response to what I think is called peer-to-peer fundraising. So that's increasingly important for lots of charities. They're basically not doing their own fundraising. They're kind of encouraging individuals to fundraise for them. So a lot of it is done through these mass events. In the UK, there's a race for life and you have sort of thousands and thousands of people raising money for Cancer Research UK, like running races and asking their friends. And then London Marathon, again, thousands of fundraisers. So this has become quite important as a mechanism for charities to raise money and then we were sort of interested in it you know in terms of what are the dynamics of this relationship when charities ask for money and the donors responding we think that the donor cares about the services that the charity is providing so you have this sort of maybe this altruistic giving which is the donors concerned about the kind of what the charity is doing But in this peer-to-peer fundraising, the whole dynamic of the activity is sort of really driven by these personal relationships. It's an individual making an ask to their friends. And so what really seems to matter is the sort of the social relationship between the fundraiser and the donor rather than the relationship between the donor and the charity. So the, the donor may not even care so much about what the charity does. What the donor cares about is, you know, the individual who's doing the ask and the individual fundraiser might care about the charity, but you have this sort of very different set of relationships. So we use the, the phrase relational altruism to describe that dynamic. Altruism means the sort of the donor is altruistically motivated towards the charity. In kind of relational altruism, what we're saying is, you know, the donor is motivated by their relationship with the fundraiser, and maybe it's fundraiser is motivated by altruism, but the donor has this sort of relational altruism. We kind of thought about this dynamic because it was a way of explaining this group pattern that we observed in the data. So, yeah, so you have these individual fundraisers who are asking their friends and family and colleagues to give to the charity that they're fundraising for. But then in practice, these uh, fundraisers have very different size social groups. What was happening on, we were working with a fundraising platform and looking at their data, and the fundraisers would ask their friends and family for donations. And then we knew from a kind of a link to Facebook how many Facebook friends they had, which was a measure of the number of people they could appeal to. So they would fundraise, they'd ask for donations from their you know, social group. Their social group is in some sense measured, the size of their social group is in some sense measured by their number of Facebook friends. What we observed is some people have 50 friends, some people have you know, 500 friends. In principle, you might think the one with 500 friends would be really successful because they have a big social group and that maybe the one with 50 friends, you know, maybe that person won't do so well. It turned out that actually having 500 friends was really no better than having 50 friends in terms of how much you raised. Because in a larger group, what would happen is each person would give less, which, you know, so we didn't really expect this, didn't really, didn't know what to expect. But what you saw was a really clear downward relationship between the size of the social group the fundraiser was appealing to and how much each person in the group was giving. 
the, the reason that relational altruism can explain this is in a sense, well, if the donors care about the fundraiser and the fundraiser cares about how much they raise, then the amount raised by the fundraiser is sort of like a local public good. If the donors are cared about the charity, then in a sense, the charity is drawing on, you know, thousands and thousands of donors. So in the case of Cancer Research UK, you know, whether the fundraiser has 50 or 500 is still a drop in the ocean compared to the thousands and thousands of donors who give to Cancer Research UK. So why should the number of friends the fundraiser has matter? Well, the, re the answer is it matters if what donors care about is the total amount raised by the fundraiser, if that's, what, if that's what they care about. And the only reason they care about that is because they care about the fundraiser and not the charity. So we could kind of explain this observed pattern through this idea of relational altruism. And the reason it matters for charities is, well, you know, they talk about this type of peer-to-peer -peer fundraising as bringing in a whole load of new donors. But actually, if all the donors care about is the fundraiser and don't have any relationship to the charity, then they're not really succeeding in doing that. So what they've got is something that's very effective in terms of generating money, but it's not very effective at generating kind of long-term donors, like people who are going to be committed to the cause. It's actually just, you know, the commitment is from the donor to the fundraiser. I think it's really interesting sort of model of fundraising. It moves away from donor charity and then you have donors fundraising friend and the charity and it's going to give rise to different types of behavior than some of the sort of more traditional economic models of fundraising have suggested. It's kind of interesting to think about the real world context and the problems and how we can sort of try and use data analysis and economic frameworks to kind of shed light on, on, on what's happening. And maybe there's a, another, a third factor there in terms of how close you are regarding the friendship of those people are, that are on Facebook. And you could read between the lines and maybe start purging some of your friends on Facebook. And, you know, it's better to have a smaller group than having 500 because if I had 500 friends I, and even 50 friends, I'd be quite stretched Yeah, no. Uh, if you were to meet them face to face. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's another sort of element of what's going on. You know, you have 50 close friends and when you ask, they give a lot because you've sort of put in a lot of effort. Whereas if you have 500, you know, there's less closeness between you and your friends. But again, then, the charity's point of view, it is suggesting that what's driving behaviour isn't what the charity's doing, which is what we've traditionally thought of. It's not how much good is this charity doing, you know, what need is the charity addressing that's driving how much people are giving. It's all just about how much they like the person who's fundraising or how close they feel to the person who's fundraising. So in terms of allocating money to the sector, it's no longer which charities are doing the best work, it's which charities have the people with the closest friends. And so that's very different in terms of what's going on and what charities are going to end up being successful and, and also what is motivating donors because in this case, it's not the charity, it's the friendship. And that's not been in the model, in the sort of, the, you know, the models of fundraising that we've kind of thought about so far. Sarah, a lot of economic research that's published in journal articles and available online, there's usually a paywall so that many people who would like access to the papers will not be able to get them. And that's unfortunate. I know I'm not speaking specifically in terms of your research, but it could be an, an example. Do charities use and benefit from research findings like this, or do they really uh, push for looking for this information? Because if 
Facebook was a charity, they would be hiring as they do economists and they would be looking at your research, Sarah, uh, in order to put it into effect in order to raise more money. Yeah, I don't know about the issue of the paywall. I mean, so a lot of academics try and make copies of their research available. And actually, I think many universities will publish working papers. It's very common in economics to have working papers, partly because the publication process takes so long. You'll often find an early draft. But I think even, you know, even if those working papers exist, it's clearly not enough to expect a charity which has many day-to-day concerns to seek out findings in a journal article which probably aren't written up in a way to necessarily draw out the implications that you know satisfy the academic referees so you know i think it is important to try and reach out and produce policy versions of academic papers or write-ups in sector press so in general that's something that i have tried to do Not expecting that everyone will be interested, but certainly make an effort to translate findings into policy and practice. Because certainly in terms of my own research, it's what motivates me and kind of keeps me me interested in thinking about these problems. Sarah, do you want to continue on talking about uh, charitable giving and your another paper, Wolves and Sheep's Clothing? Or would you like to move on to another topic, say on gender and economics something we kind of communicate I think let's talk about let's talk about gender because yeah. I think the wolf in sheep's clothing is probably a bit is, is less related yeah. I think if that's okay that's perfect and I think it's great timing given the 100 year anniversary anyway of women's yes. voting rights in Ireland and the UK yes yeah let's talk gender then people seem to think women who talk about gender are more feminist but when men talk about it that Maybe men are, will be considered feminists as well. And this is something that we've talked about in previous episodes. And one uh, that seems to stand out to me as far as I can remember is with Professor Shosanna Grossbard when she worked with Gary Becker uh, back in the Chicago school. So right. how has it, do you think, gender and economics has evolved since, I don't know, 1930s, 40s? I don't remember that far. <laughs> no. <laughs> You might remember the adverts and they're quite damaging to the way we look back on women's place being in the kitchen and that type of thing and advertising to men and women. Yeah, so I mean, the position of women in academic economics has been getting slightly better, but it's still, as a discipline, it's still very male dominated. So it's male dominated at every level. So obviously, you know, it's 100 years this week since women in the UK got the vote. And so it was sort of, you know, useful to reflect on women in politics and women in economics. In the UK, we've had one female president of the Royal Economic Society. You know, we've had managed two female prime ministers. There are sort of more women sitting in the House of Commons than there are sitting in academic departments in the UK. And at an undergraduate level, we're lagging behind most STEM subjects in terms of the proportion of undergraduates who are female. So it's less than 30% of undergraduates in the UK economics are female compared to kind of, you know, 40% in maths and statistics. So in a recent uh, survey done by a colleague at Bristol, who's director of the Economics Network, they asked members of the public to say whether economics was more male or more female. So actually most people didn't assign a gender, but when people did assign a gender, it was sort of 30 to one who said it was male compared to female. So there is this conveyor belt of male economists who are probably paraded before members of the public, before the students. You know, it's a very male world. 
But I think that the dangerous thing is if people come to associate economics only as being a male discipline. So saying it's male is a description of how it is, but, you know, it's not a description of how it has to be or how it could be. I think, you know, there's no reason why economics can't appeal to men and women equally. I often tell colleagues that most undergraduates doing economics are male and they'll come back with, well, you know, women don't like technical subjects. And Bristol, for example, we require students to have A-level math. So there's a degree of technicality to it. But when you go back and tell them that, well, actually, there is a higher share of females in maths than there is in economics, so it can't be that maths is the pro- you know, the lack of maths is the problem, then we have to wonder what is it about economics which is putting so many women off. And that's really something I think we have to start addressing. You know, we need to sort of understand why girls aren't choosing economics and then try and address any possible stereotypes that exist around economics being a subject for men and only interested in male subjects. I wonder, does it have a connection similar to physics? I don't know what the proportion of male to females would be in terms of uh, study in f- physics or in, in academic sectors? There are three big subjects which have even fewer women, so physics, computer science and engineering. Okay, so economics uh, and or finance have those similarities, I think, with physics and engineering, especially when you hear lately of financial engineering. And maybe it's something to do with the way, the I don't know, the material is being used to kind of depict these type of engineering or physics solutions where we remove the human element or something from it. I'm not saying that male are less human or females are more human. Yes, no, I think that's a really plausible hypothesis that economics and finance are really closely related in people's eyes. So I think as economics departments, when we're trying to do a pitch to students as to why they should study economics, it's, you know, it's always quite attractive to point to the destinations of our graduates and many economics graduates go on to incredibly well-paid jobs and a lot of that is due to the fact that they have skills which are valued by the city. And probably what we need to do is is add, you know, and of course economics can take you to the city. It is very useful for working as a researcher or a trader, but actually there's a whole load of different careers you could do. You know, you could go and work for a, an NGO in a developing country. You could work in an education research centre. It's such a broad discipline. It just gives you a set of very general quantitative analytical skills that really are going to be you know useful in a wide range of careers so I think we've probably found it very easy to attract students by playing up the you know you can get a very well-paid job if you study economics by going to work in the city and haven't done enough of you know look the subject is so much broader and it can set you up for a a career in, in, in a whole load of areas. And the nice thing about economics is it's so closely related to so many different subjects, you know, so economics and psychology or economics and history or economics and demography. So it can speak to the topics that many other different subjects are interested in. Its breadth is what makes it such an exciting subject, but I, I'm not sure whether we've done a very good job at at conveying that to people when they're making their, you know, their choices. So in the UK, people have to decide what to study at university, you know, when they're sort of 16 or 17. Many students won't have studied economics. So actually one of the things we've been looking at is where economics is offered in schools. So, you know, we, we found really surprisingly, you know, there are lots of all-girls schools in the UK, 
And the proportion who are offered economics in those girls' schools is way lower than the proportion of boys in boys' schools who are offered economics. So there are many people who don't get to find out what economics is about. So we need to be really reaching out, engaging with people, telling them what economics really is and what economists are interested in. And I'm hoping if we can kind of communicate effectively the kind of the usefulness and the variety of topics that economics can allow you to engage with, then we can start to change the proportion of women flowing into the discipline. It's strange because I think it's a lot to do with perception. I know when I had a choice between biology and physics when I was 15 to to study it in school, I was going to choose biology, but then people were saying, oh, that's a a girl's subject. And foolishly, I went along and decided to drop it and choose physics instead. Yes. Um, well, you know, said, then, yeah, well, you get these, I mean, to be honest, you wouldn't be wrong to say economics is a boys' subject, because if you look at who's studying it, it is boys. You know, boys are more likely to be offered it, boys are more likely to take it. But like I said, we have to be very careful about people's perceptions becoming uh, identities of, of the disciplined. You know, so you see boys taking it, and then you think, well, that means I, it's not for me. You know, so it's interesting, psychology has the opposite problem, that you know, 80% of students doing psychology are girls. Yeah, you can get these small differences because of peer effects or gender identity effects just becoming completely magnified and you end up with, with these disciplines which are, you know, seem to be dominated by one gender or the other. And that's really, I don't think to go either way is particularly healthy because studies by economists have shown that you know diversity is really good for finding creative solutions to problems so i think you know having a good gender mix in in the discipline would would be important for you know sort of ensuring the best economics and also probably having some influence on the sort of topics that that get studied i say it doesn't help either when you have one female Nobel laureate in economics, Eleanor Ostrom. Yes, who um, wasn't even, that, that's just, yes, who, who trained as a political scientist. She was told that economics wasn't for her. So. <laughs> but what's odd is one of the bottom three subjects you mentioned, computer science, also had majority male to female ratios. But only that kind of changed in the 70s. Computer coding was dominated by females. And if you look back at, say, during World War II, it was a lot of women who actually were trying to crack the code that the Germans had. I think it can change, but it probably will take a concerted effort. So there's a fascinating study of academic textbook by Betsy Stevenson. So we're talking about the dominance of male figures everywhere. So she looked at all the gender identity of, of real and fictional characters in economics textbooks. So the sort of hypothetical examples. So not only are economic textbooks full of real male economists, but they're even full of fictional males you know so students are getting this very male view so there's something that could be directly changed you know so if you make more of an effort to have business women or household decision makers who are women then perhaps girls would relate more to the subject rather than you know seeing it as an environment which is talking about men making decisions rather than people making decisions apparently the shift in computer science from female to male dominance happened because of a weekly magazine or a monthly magazine that was targeted for boys in the 70s. And they had pieces where they could build their own little computer and program, learn how to program. So by the time when they got to an age where they went to third level, males knew coding and that isolated the women. And then because of that, then you had a lower uptake of females in that discipline. And I think it's uh, to put it in a somewhat, not a fun way, but make it, made it more reachable and accessible for 
those younger kids to study computer science? Definitely, there are lessons to be learned from other disciplines. It's quite exciting to see a number of organisations actually really beginning to wake up to kind of what's happening and realise the need to engage with um, school children. So the Bank of England, for example, they have a whole load of resources designed to kind of be incorporated right across the UK curriculum. So, you know, they're a bit more focused on money supply and financial decisions, but it certainly, you know, shows the potential of what could be done, you know. So I think reaching out, talking to people about what economics is, and also trying to develop materials for younger children would be, yeah, definitely something that, that I think could help to change people's perceptions. So for the last few years in Bristol, we've done a a challenge, a sort of schools challenge with people. So we presented a real world problem and then got them to think about how to use economics to come up with solutions. So we've done kind of healthy eating in schools and the rise of the robots and congestion. And it's amazing seeing how engaged people are. And I think it is something that people care about. We're talking about issues which people often have things to say about and want to get involved in so I think making them realize that you know while you're thinking about health eating in schools this is actually you know something where economics can be quite useful and and, and can provide a perspective on solutions I think you know hopefully that sort of discussion might make it seem more appealing. Sarah would you have time to answer a couple of random type questions? I will give a go. Okay. If you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you like to go back to and who would you like to meet and what conversation would you think you'd have? So this is sort of very much of the moment. So because it was the 100-year anniversary of women getting the vote and I was writing something about women in economics now and then 100 years ago. So I was reading about all these amazing women, early graduates of economics at UCL, who were there at the start of the Royal Economic Society who were publishing in the first editions of the Economic Journal and were writing about women's work among kind of middle class and and working class women. I would love to go back and talk to them and find out what their passion was. They really saw economics as being integral to the cause of kind of women's suffrage and they were using evidence and analysis to draw attention to the position of women. They must have been so passionate and motivated and I think it would be really really interesting to go back and talk to them and then, you know, take inspiration from them to carry on pushing things forward today. I've read that article actually, still a long way to go a century on. And you do yes. list out some of those females, those women who were early UCL graduates. Yeah, you know, they were really breaking the mould. It must have been so tough for them. And they, you know, they were really path breaking. I think they'd be fascinating to talk to. This is a question I'm only starting to recently ask, actually. Right. Is there a song that you could identify any economic themes in? And if you could perhaps elaborate on it a little. Um, a song. Mm. That's a really hard one. Um, I'd, yeah, have to come yeah. back, I'd have to come back to that one. Um, we'll have to give it a miss then and maybe it's something that I should have uh, put to you yeah no I'm sure yeah. with about kind of like a week's notice <laughs> I had a really good answer um, the female economist in Bristol did some karaoke the previous week actually and it was only watching the lyrics that I realised that Billie Jean by Michael Jackson is in fact a man's attempt to distance himself from having fathered a child and really was somewhere I think the child support agency needed to be brought in because he was basically denying paternity so, <laughs> so uh, I mean it's not really economics but um, you well, know you could, you could link to it already yes, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it was 
not pleasant, actually. It kind of makes you realise just how things have moved on. Yeah. Would you have any advice for students of economics or those considering taking on the discipline? Into what? Advice? I suppose what to consider or maybe any difficulties that they will encounter and be ready for them. Yes, as head of department, I've spent the last few years sort of doing the open day talks. And I do always feel, you know, that pretty confident in recommending the course to students. I think it's a really great combination of analytical technical skills and the ability to translate technical complex material hopefully into kind of simple recommendations or implications for sort of policy and practice so I would recommend considering it. Students struggle with econometrics it can seem a bit abstract and technical but I think it's one of the single best set of transferable skills you get out of an economics degree you know the ability to make sense of data and also what questions to ask in terms of thinking about data so computer scientists increasingly have got really good data skills and they're able to deal with big data and interrogate big data in a way that you know most economists don't learn as as much as part of their degree but I still think economists are really skilled in asking questions, asking relevant questions and thinking about the behavior that might underlie the data. I think what I'd like to see in, you know, sort of a few years time is economics degrees offering computer science skills within them. I think that would make an economics degree even more useful if you learn how to ask the questions and then you also learn the kind of the big data skills that you could then take into kind of any organization and just be able to be the person who could really see insights into the business or see insights into kind of the, the you know, the policy and be able to deliver the answers. I don't know about your own degree, but... I know there are degrees out there in economics that don't have any philosophy in there. And I think it's important to have philosophy so you can be able to ask those questions, maybe at a a deeper level and explore them. We have a history of economic thought. That's not, I mean, that's not philosophy, but it does give a perspective. And yeah, so as I said, in, in the second year applied micro, we've explicitly this year focused a bit more on the welfare analysis. Because I suppose economists like to think of themselves as being objective or, you know, sort of having this sort of neutral framework. But at the end of the day, there are sort of Im- some implicit assumptions underlying what we do. And also, you know, we need to be able to make statements about welfare and I think it's good to be aware of the sort of the framework within which we do that. Um, I agree that's important. Do you have a good book that you would recommend or that you sat down and and read fiction or non-fiction that would be good for someone to even get a sense of economics? Yeah so I have just started reading, finished reading the uh, Jean Tirole's book I thought that was brilliant as a kind of a defense of economics. Um, and, it, you know, he'd clearly been asked a lot of questions about the discipline and it was his attempt to sort of put down all the answers. So I, I would definitely recommend that as a way to understand sort of how economists think and, and what the discipline's about. I don't mind wrapping up now unless you have anything you'd like to add, Sarah. No, I think that was good. I think we, that was a, a fun conversation. I'd yeah, it was quite enjoyable, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Great. No, it was really good. That was really enjoyable. Thanks very much. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Would you like to share where we could find you? Yes, you can find me on the University of Bristol website and that will link to my personal website, which is not quite as um, up-to-date as many people's, but maybe when I stop being head of department, I will put some more information on there. It's been really good fun talking to you. It's really 
good to reflect on economics and think about what makes it interesting and challenging. So it's been a fun hour. Most definitely. And you can find all links to Sarah at economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah Smith. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.